0: Welcome to Christmas
1: episode of Our Podcast. Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot,
0: no.
2: Probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages.
0: No, I don't know anything
3: about that country. Poland, sausages, (laughs) pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're gonna try to show you.
1: Paul and all that
3: jazz i'm
1: małgorzata bonikowska and i'm Tomek kniat welcome to the 60th episode of podcast
3: well this episode 60 is our very special christmas episode
1: our second christmas episode and this time i'm ready for christmas
3: oh so that means you were not ready for christmas last year
1: are we ever ready for Christmas? Well, you are this year, Tommy. Come on. So that's special. Yeah, in my heart, I'm waiting for Christmas.
3: Okay, well, I'm thinking whether I am. I'm, I always look forward to Christmas. In terms of the weather, unlike where you are, and we're almost in the same city, I'm a little north, I've had snow for the last three and a half weeks. So this has been uh, very white waiting for absolutely, definitely white Christmas.
1: Well, we didn't have to clear snow yet this year, but... Shortly after we finish our recording, we're going to pick up our Christmas tree. At a farm. At a farm.
3: That's right. So that's a very nice Christmas tradition in Canada. Uh, now, what we're going to show you today is things that are related to Christmas, right? On our uh,
1: podcast. Our Smacznego Polish cooking segment has all kinds of Christmas treats for you.
3: That's right. And we are also talking to Artur Wachnik, uh, and I have uh, seen his wonderful, wonderful nativity uh, musical at the center that he's in charge of. But that's later. Anyhow, so welcome to our Christmas episode number 60.
1: And please enjoy this episode filled with Christmas spirit.
3: If you want to join us promoting Polish culture, history, and great work of interesting Poles around the world, because Poland and Poles need good publicity now more than ever,
1: and if you want to hear your name at the beginning of our next episode,
3: please visit our patrons page at mypolcast.com
1: slash support. You can find all the information about our crowdfunding campaign right there. We welcome and thank our new podcast supporter, Matthew Samulewski. Thank you, Matthew.
3: And thank you all. Christmas is the special time when we think of others, or at least we should do so, the time of giving and caring. Hence this story. For six years, Ted Dawson has traveled to rural Tanzania, an area next door to Kilimanjaro, to help local people build and modernize infrastructure. In November, for the very first time, he took with him Eva Henry, a Polish-Canadian artist, always ready to help others through various help campaigns and initiatives. Eva is always there when someone needs help. Our podcast listeners met Eva and her scientist friend Dorota Skowrońska-Krawczyk from California. We presented their innovative program combining science and art called Visions. Now I'm talking to Eva and Ted about the new program in the remote village of Tanzania, which was possible thanks to Eva's involvement. Both of you have just been to Tanzania, right? How much time did you spend there?
4: I was there uh, three weeks.
5: And I was there six weeks. And typically I'm there anywhere from a month to three months. But this year it was six weeks.
3: How did your story and your, your whole adventure with this place start?
5: Uh, for me, um, I'd always had this idea of, of going to Africa. And about six years ago I met uh, a fellow named Peter Morin. Who was, uh, he's a retired uh, engineer from Kingston, Ontario. And he was looking for some tools to take over for some programs at this vocational training center. And he contacted me because I was so happened to be selling a few tools at the time. And once we connected over the tools and we started telling each other our stories, we got very connected and I got very interested in the work that he was doing over there. And uh, that kind of went from there. So that was six years ago and I've been going for six years. Peter goes every year, and then I go every year.
3: What What really drew you to this, to such an extent that you've decided to go every year?
5: That's a good question. It's, it's really just because I've always wanted to give something back. I've been pretty fortunate in my life. I've always been drawn to traveling and um, hadn't been to Africa before that, but had always dreamt of going to Africa. And then working with Peter... You know, and, and really we we kind of have a little bit of a family there. After, you know, once you start going and, and you, you make these connections and you meet people and you establish these relationships, it feels a bit like family, and it's just so nice to go back.
3: And this year, for the first time, you've taken Eva. Eva, how was it for you? It must have been quite an amazing experience. Was that your first time in Africa?
4: It was my first time in Tanzania, my first time in Africa, combining basically everything that I love.
3: Which is what? I want a list of everything that you love.
4: (laughs) You've known me. I get involved in a lot of charity work, a lot of uh, initiatives where I can help people, children especially. And, you know, I love traveling. I don't do the tourist thing. I love meeting people. And this spring I met Ted, and things started going at the speed of light and when i when he told me about what he he was doing about his work in africa i said wow this is something i would love to do and then i had my ticket to tanzania and i was going and he was planning how i could get involved how i could do what i know how to do that's when he came up with the idea that i could actually Teach art there.
3: So. Right, and I think that's quite amazing because, you, I mean, at least for a person that doesn't have too much experience with that, you always think people going to Africa. Well, they go to build something. They go something to renovate. Go there to renovate something. To, but this is such a such an amazing thing. You went there to bring your. Art there, and to get art out of them, whatever. I mean, to to make that connection. How did that work? Because you know, watching you on Facebook, I was inc- incredibly impressed with uh, how that seemed to resonate with the people there.
5: The, the school I go to is very remote. It's it's a, it's in a very rural area, and it's sort of surrounded by small villages. And there's a village that I've been quite connected to called Cecherini. And Checareini is about five kilometers from the school. The, the school owns a work a very small woodworking shop in cecherini. You, you You go through these villages and people are friendly, they're waving, they're talking. My idea from the from the get-go with Eva was that I'd like her to, to teach in the village because there are people in the villages who really have nothing. Going on in their lives, and particularly young people. So, Evanite and I together came up with this idea that that maybe we would target young people who a aren't working and b don't go to school.
3: They don't go to school, but they're school age, right?
4: Yeah, they uh, they would be high school age and older, and they can't afford, and they don't have much much prospects for life. And so the idea—we were staying, both of us were staying at the Iman, Imani Vocational Training Centre, that school that Ted has been involved with for six years. But I would be traveling to work every day. Uh, Ted spoke with the village elders, and uh, we had to start from from really from nothing. We didn't know. Who would be interested in these classes, the workshops, Who, how many people, what age? We had no idea. In the meantime, we were trying to organize supplies, and that, that, that was an amazing response we had. We basically asked on Facebook, and in no time, we had over $1,000. We had art supplies that we carried with us.
5: There was a sort of a series of events that happened when I got to Tanzania, meeting one or two people who connected me with the the village chairman. And he like right from the instant I met him and with through it through through another person and through a translator, he was very much on board and very positive. and he, he told us right away that there was one artist in the village whose name is Rajabu. Um, also became connected and and um, supportive right away. So we basically had the two most important people in the village on board right away. However,
4: we had uh, a perfect group for uh, for this workshop for this course. We had about <laughs> thirty young people. More or less, the age range would be from fourteen to twenty-two, twenty-three. And uh, we had uh, one person uh, with disability who was quite older, and he enjoyed it a lot. And he had this amazing talent. And we had room at the community center. We rented it. So we had two groups, one morning group, one afternoon group. And in the meantime, it turned out we had a few younger children coming during the lunch break.
5: And the village chairman, whose name was Leonard, by the way, Leonard and Rajabu, basically put word out that, you know, this Canadian artist was coming and that there'd be a free art workshops for two weeks. And, and then it kind of even grew from there as eva said that the, these children started coming around the chairman was there every single day you know mm-hmm. lugging, lugging water and 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 running for supplies and and just being doing whatever he cleaning paintbrushes and doing whatever he needed to do he was incredibly supportive mm-hmm. in fact we the program is going to be continuing without us there with leonard and Rejabu, um continuing every three days a week. Like, basically, ongoing until we we go back next year.
3: Did you find them, like, art-hungry? Uh, what was the response, Eva?
4: You know, we, we wanted to equip them with something that they could maybe somehow make, make their living out of or supplement it. That would help them to get out there, maybe into—they're in a remote village. So, for these people to get their art outside is not that easy— I hope you followed what we've Mm -hmm. done, the self of of Rajabu's paintings. He was just astonished because a lot of these these artists, when they're in a city, they have a chance to offer these paintings mostly to tourists. This is the style. It's called tinga tinga, and it's geared mostly towards outsiders, the tourists. Rajabu, being in the village, doesn't have that access. So we offered at one point that we would put a few of of his paintings on Facebook, hoping that we would, you know, help him sell a few. And in three days, we sold, I think, over 20. And Mm -hmm. we got him a few commissions. And so he was speechless, basically. So this was amazing. Helping him financially. These are very poor villages, poor people, no employment. Our plan is to create this program, like long run, and enabling these people to be self-sustained, hopefully, that they can find some income out of it, some joy. It's not only, but income is a, is a big thing. As, at the same time, we, we were very careful not to create some false expectations However, the joy was there. People were coming back, seeing them. It worked out very well. We also had another helper, young artist from Moshi, from the uh, town that's closest to Chakareni. Victor is a young artist, and he was helping us a bit with the program as well. And you you could see the involvement and you could see the pride and the sense of accomplishment at the end.
5: And there was definitely a commitment and, and focus amongst these people, too. Like these, these students were just so committed and focused to this throughout the two weeks. Some of them are quite amazing what they were able to paint, having had zero experience with art before this. And
3: what was the reaction of the community? Because obviously it is a little different for those who participate, but how about everybody else? You know, their families, their friends. It was very
4: interesting because I started appearing in the village every morning. So there was some curiosity next to this community center. And when we say community center, you realize this is a different infrastructure. So we were in a simple room. With no running water, it, you have to also reevaluate your uh, abilities in this in this reality. Mm-hmm. We had to carry buckets of water. You know, suddenly you, you realize everything is not available at your fingertips. Well, obviously, we had daylight most of the, throughout our classes. We had, you know. We didn't need heat, with, so everything was supplied. Light and, and heat was supplied by the nature and water was supplied
5: by For the community well, which is right across the street. So the, yeah. your question was about others mm-hmm. in the village and there was definitely a curiosity and it was also sort of in the hub of the village, which is this community well. So there were people poking their heads in. There were kids coming up to see what was going on. There were friends of the people, of the students that were were working with. Ava that would come by and of course we're we're both I'm going through the village regularly and so is Evan and and then People just begin to get to know you, and they wave and they say hi, and they
4: and very friendly curiosity. I was going to say, right next to the community center, uh,
5: there was a courthouse. Again, just a just a, exactly. a very small and simple building, but it was the courthouse for the village, and there was always a regular crowd there too.
4: So people started peeking through the window, windows, uh, waving, very friendly. So. The world got around. And so we, we kind of uh, became a picture in the village life. And when we were uh, going to and from on uh, Boda Boda, which is the motorcycle taxi. <laughs> so, yeah, at the end, it was like when I was leaving, of course, I cried. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it, we, we had quite formed quite an attachment with the students.
5: We threw a little party at the end, too. If people saw the snacks here, they'd probably look at them and go, what the hell is this? But it's basically like fried green bananas, which aren't sweet, and uh, these donut-type things that aren't sweet. Pop, and what was the fourth thing? Oh, we uh, peanuts, groundnuts, they call them. So that was our little party, and, it was, and they loved it.
3: Are you going back? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It never stops once it starts, right?
5: <laughs> well, no, and also, like, we really actually, I, I'm as excited now about, pushing this program and developing this program and moving into the next village which is called mtakuja and apparently there's one artist in mtakuja as well so rajabu and leonard are keeping the program going throughout Mm -hmm. the next year we 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 opened up a bank account they both signed on to the bank account and we 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 deposited money well the money came from your pocket and now we're going to raise to replenish your pocket we're going to do a fundraiser Uh, to raise another thousand dollars or so for the next year, which which Rajabu can use to buy supplies. Mm-hmm. So he, him and Leonard are so committed; they're basically working for nothing for the next year to keep this program going. We'll go back and we'll probably try and ramp it up in Chakrani and and move it also onto the next village. So we hope to be there for about a month doing that. Mm-hmm. And I, what I was saying was, I'm as excited about the art program as my other work.
3: You were doing something completely different. I mean, for these last six years, you've been working on some. Something- something very specific. Can you tell me what it is?
5: Typically when Peter and I go, we 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 support the school through some administrative work and infrastructure work. So and and Peter's more of an administrator and I'm more of a hands-on kind of uh, so, so I'll work on their water system. I'll work on 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 building repair. Um, this year, though, was was a great year because Peter and I fundraised independent of the art program. We fundraised for a solar water pump pumping system. So, basically, they've been reliant on the local power system, but the local power system is very unreliable. So, the water system has been somewhat unreliable. So now we've installed a complete solar powered water pump. So Eva, take-
3: and you've never been there before. This was your first time. What have you learned?
4: I've learned that people are basically the same everywhere we go. I, I mean, I knew that we fit everywhere if we want to fit. We don't need that much to live. We've been so spoiled in our our Western world, you know, we need a bucket of water once in a while to 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 wash ourselves and to get our paint for our painting. You can make friends everywhere, especially now. You know, Christmas is coming. We need to reevaluate our, our values, uh, what we need in life, and what we need to give in life. This is something that I am, you know, stuck with for life.
5: I. <laughs> Thankfully. Yes. Can we mention, Gosha, that we are going to do through Eva's Facebook page, and I guess mine, we're, we are going to do a little fundraiser. We have six of Rajabu's paintings, and we have 10 of the students' paintings, plus some other pieces that the students did that we're going to either auction off or sell online to raise more money for the program to bring more more supplies next year and to... To, to continue to develop this program in the villages in and around the school.
1: To learn more about Ted and Eva and their trip and to see those wonderful pictures, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. <laughs> This is another segment resulting from our collaboration with a group of students from Poland, History Buffs, who created a very interesting website, greatpoles.pl.
6: Hello everyone, and welcome to yet another segment of Great Poles on Polcast. I am your host, Barbara Kargill, and today, Szymon Hojciak and I are going to talk about one of the most recognizable Polish heroes, Janusz Korczak. He was a Pole of Jewish descent who lived during the First and Second World Wars. He devoted his whole life to caring for children, whether it was by working at a children's hospital, by opening an orphanage, writing books for and about children, or by walking to sure death with them at the Nazi Treblinka death camp. In Poland, Janusz Korczak is known as the master of the art of teaching. But what was so incredible about his method of working with children?
7: Well, one of the most revolutionary and uniquely progressive ideas expressed in his writing was the outright condemnation of corporal punishment, which was, back then, considered an entirely normal and healthy feature of upbringing. Instead, Korczak claimed that children should be raised in a climate of special emotional sensitivity. He treated the youngsters at his orphanage as if he were their own father. He strove to meet the children's needs of parental love. His most uncommon touch was to treat children's intellect similarly to the one of adults. Janusz Kolczak challenged children intellectually. He wanted them to acquire the skill of critical thinking, as well as the empathic approach to other human beings.
6: What made him start such charitable work in the first place?
7: Well, during his medical career, Kolchak spent a great deal of time working as a pediatrician, accepting no remuneration for on poor people and only charging wealthy families. He also worked as a counselor both on Christian and Jewish children's summer camps. But, rich or poor, he showed fascination with all children. Based on these experiences, he wrote two books on juvenile behavior. This was his first insight into children's psychology. In years 1905-1912, he worked in a children's hospital in Warsaw, and in 1912, he became a director at an orphanage. He made a decision not to have a family on his own, but helped the children that lack parental love.
6: Well, that seemed to be very selfless of him. Korczak was a man who truly believed in children's capacity for ambitious tasks. He helped start a children's newspaper. Could you tell us a bit more about that?
7: Well, Kolchak wanted his foster children to develop their abilities and work hard for their future life. One of the best ways to do it was to encourage intellectual pursuits to be shared with others. Kolchak gave the children at an orphanage the chance to edit a real newspaper. It was named Mały Przegląd which means a small review. And it was a weekly addition to regular Polish newspaper Nasz Przegląd, which means our review. Mały Przegląd mostly contained children's description of their own experiences and reflection. Nasz Przegląd was a Jewish publication in Polish rather than Yiddish, read predominantly by Poles of Jewish origin, like Korczak himself.
6: Janusz Korczak also kept a journal. What did uh, he write
7: about? Well... Korczak's journal describes the life in Warsaw occupied by German Nazi forces. Up to this day, this journal is a most valuable and relevant source of knowledge about the last months of Korczak's life and the brutal reality of the Jewish ghetto. It shocks the reader with the images of famine and chaos on the streets of Warsaw in 1942. It also describes the fate of malnourished children at the Warsaw Hospital and the Jewish Orphan House. At the hospital where Kolchak worked, the famished members of staff committed cruel acts of theft of children's food. This led to many instances of children's death due to starvation. After witnessing dreadful scenes of children in agony, Kolchak conceived and described an idea of euthanasia for young patients in his journal. The other part of the journal contains Kolchak's reflection on the human behavior in extreme situations and also his advice on how to deal with with and survive the German occupation.
6: Could you recount the story of his final days for us?
7: Well, within the last days of life, Kolchak tried to maintain the routine of the pre-war times. He actively participated and helped many institutions that tackled the problem of offency. On the 5th of August 1942, German soldiers arrived at his orphanage to take all the Jewish children to death camps. Korchak decided to accompany the children, despite having been offered a chance of escape to a safe place. He claimed that it was his moral duty not to abandon those he loved at the tragic moment. He was last seen during walking through Umschlagplatz a railway station within the ghetto created for loading the people onto cattle trains going to death camps. What is certain is that they were taken to Treblinka to die in the gas chambers. There are testimonies of some Zondern commander workers forced to aid with the disposal of gas chambers' victims' bodies who claim to have seen Kolchak's body with the children clinging to him. In my opinion, his incredibly brave decision not to leave children during their walk to death deserves a place in our memory and hearts. He was a true visionary in pedagogy and child's education, and his research and charity laid foundation for empathetic children's upbringing models nowadays.
6: Thank you, Shimon. That was a great presentation of Korczak's Life. Uh, Check out our website, uh, greatpolls.pl. Thank you for listening and tuning in with us. Bye.
3: What I really love is when fascinating stories grow by getting extensions and offering new lives. Here is one such story. At the beginning of Polcast, I interviewed Ron Davis, a renowned Canadian jazz musician, a son of Holocaust survivors. His mother, Alicia, who came to Canada from Poland after the war with no documents, no family photos, had one story to tell that before the war, her father, Ron's grandfather, used to run an inn in Warsaw, which was so famous that it was immortalized in a popular song. No one really believed her for decades. Nobody knew the name of the place or the song. And then, one day, she found proof. At a multicultural exhibition in Toronto, where the Polish booth, they played to her the song called Bal u Grubego joska, also known as Bal na gnojne. And that was it. All Varsovians, like me and my family, knew that song. It was played by street bands and was part of Warsaw City folklore. Ron got to know the whole story, and recorded an album, My Mother's Father's Song, with his own three arrangements of the classic. He had a chance to perform it at the Jewish festival in Warsaw, sadly soon after his mother's death. I loved the story and was also honored to be invited by CBC producer Barb Dickey to participate in her radio show in order to provide the background by talking about pre-war Warsaw and the importance of the sort of music of which Balna is an example. Since then, Ron has been discovering other missing pieces of the family puzzle and has played the song in many places, including Fringe Festival in Edinburgh. And this is where he met Anna Bayat, who heard his music and the magical story of the song, how Ron discovered its origin and its connection to his life. Anna, a multilingual actress of Persian origin living and working in California, was charmed by the story and is working on a play about Alicia, Alice, Ron's mother. I reach Anna in San Francisco. All right, Anna, I want you to tell me about how you met Ron. I know it was in
2: Edinburgh at, I guess, Fringe Festival, right? That's right. It was at the 70th uh, Festival Fringe in Edinburgh, as you said, in Scotland. And I was actually there performing my own show, Mimi's Suitcase. And I was looking for shows that I could go and see right after. And uh, somebody suggested uh, Ron Davis's Symphonica. So my husband and I went and um, there was a nine musician band put together for this uh, beautiful music that was performed at the Scottish House, which was a very intimate sort of setting. It looked like a like a living room, basically. And uh, and at the end of the of the concert, um, Ron got up and started talking about um, the story of a woman called Alice. And, you know, there we are all listening Uh, with all of our beings and all of a sudden at the end you know it turns out that the story was about his own mother and uh, I was so taken by the story that um, when I came back to San Francisco, California I got in touch with him through a friend and uh, asked for permission to write uh, the story of his mother and um, I'm just so honored that the answer was yes. So two years have passed. Have you kept in touch? I have kept in touch, yes, because, uh, you know, it mattered to me that Ron be involved. And uh, so, yes, I have been in touch with him about some logistics just simply to keep him abreast of the latest developments, whether it was in the writing phase or uh, uh, potential dates for a public presentation of the monologue. So how much have you learned since then? You know, how has this, this, this attraction to the story developed? Well, for me, the attraction initially—and uh, you're right, because the first time you hear it, you might not remember every single detail, you know—and and that was, to be perfectly honest, you know, that was exactly how I felt. I just remember that I was that I was that I was in tears, that I was very touched, that there was something very universal about the story that told me that uh, because of the themes that I had tackled in Mimi's Suitcase—universal themes of displacement, of immigration of identity and all of that. I suddenly felt that the story of Ron's mother really spoke to me, even though I'm not Polish, Uh, but it it really spoke to me. And I felt that through the lens of a universal look at what the experience of immigration is like and what history has taught us and what we've noticed over the course of different historical events, that it's uh, all the more important nowadays um, to keep telling these stories. Came away from that experience of listening the story, also from Ron, told so beautifully and, and with so much energy, um, keeping the punchline for for the end. Because as I mentioned you know, throughout it, you, you just didn't know um, who he was talking about. And at the very end, when he says, "And that and that woman or that lady or that Alice was my mother," and you know, and this is how he he sort of ended ended that piece of storytelling at the end of. Uh, Um, his beautiful music over the course of the hour, hour long that the concert was. And so what I have learned uh, since um, have been things such as uh, (laughs) Polish people and Hungarian people don't get along. Oh, that's, you know what, that is not true. There
3: is even a saying, Anna. Um, Mm -hmm. What does it say? Let me see. Uh, Polish, Polak, Węgier, dwa bratanki i od which means a pole it's almost proverbial as like everybody knows it it's a pole and a Hungarian are like brothers or like nephews and nieces but they they unify or they come together in drinking and in stories
2: hmm. <laughs> so I'm sure there is plenty more to learn but i'm 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 here for the long ride and I'm I'm fully committed to um, helping tell this story and uh, Passing on the torch so that Alice's story, uh, you know, does not fade away with time. Mm
3: -hmm. How much did you know before?
2: Well, the the things that I knew before have been through all the uh, documentaries or cinema. You know, I was a child who grew up with multilingual parents. My father spoke uh, uh, German, Spanish, French, English, Turkish. And my mother also spoke uh, German. And so I I was exposed to all of these different sounds. And um, and then I grew up multilingually, you know, as I said, speaking Spanish in society, French at school, Persian at home. And as I said, with a little bit of German here and there, we had Italian neighbors. So I, I got a little bit from that. Then Catalan was starting to appear again at school. So I got that as well. And so we I was exposed from a very uh, early age to all sorts of media. There was no, you know, quote unquote, prohibition in my house. So I've been exposed to many stories, particularly through the lens of cinema, because my father was also a theater and film person, but more specifically about the onset of world, you know, world war two and all of that. uh, Right now I'm at a phase where because of the writing of this story and because of wanting to be a hundred percent sure about what I say, um, is in you know being in line and aligned with what actually happened because you know in in writing you can have certain uh license for uh, imagination and creative uh uh, story weaving which which i want this to be because yes it's alice's story but i definitely you know if there are some detours uh to be taken and and ron has been so generous about uh giving me freedom to to exercise that uh, that creative vision but um there's still a lot to be learned, and uh, and I'm definitely um, in the middle of it and, and enjoying it. Why did you decide to make it her story
3: and not his story? Why his um, mother and not not him?
2: I think again, I think through the through the process of creating Mimi's Suitcase, which is, which is my story of coming of age and of sort of changing cultures and countries and. Uh, experiencing the, those unspoken feelings of what displacement and uprooting, I think they call it involuntary uprooting um, creates in, in people, creates in teenagers. I think for me through that lens, I became very familiar with the type of storytelling that maybe tells the, the female um, story. But that is not to say that the male characters in this story are not important. Of course, they're very important. But I think I'm starting to realize that I do care a lot about stories of immigration. And then in addition to that, if the, if the, the story centers around a woman, uh, I feel like I perhaps have more to co- contribute that way, um, either through my own experiences um, or um, things I've seen in, in life or heard.
3: So, can you tell me more, a little bit more about the play that you're thinking of writing? Initially,
2: the idea was to write a monologue, and the first draft was definitely a monologue. But then, as I was as I was writing it, I noticed that the relationship between Alice and her husband is is crucial and central to the to the story. Because, as you recall from your own wonderful interview with Ron on podcast. Um, Alice was not believed throughout her whole life, right? So she, she just spent a lifetime saying, but this song, but but my father, but the tavern, but the, all of these things. And it wasn't until towards the end of her life that when Ron took her to the exhibition center, National Exhibition Center, she found the Polish booth. And of course, you know, the, the uh, that booth and, and the woman who was working there was able to shed light on, on the documents that proved that indeed, um, her father's tavern, and her father was at the center uh, of uh, Bal Joska And, I, and apologize I apologize for my, for my no, uh, actually, it sounded <laughs> Anna. It
3: sounded good. It sounded very Polish to me.
2: And at this point, I'm even imagining a duologue, if you like, or a two-play, two people play. But uh, the most exciting part of it all is um, is that Ron um, has accepted to perhaps. Um, participate with live music. And I think that's just going to be the highlight of the show. What is it in this story that touched
3: your heart so much?
2: I think for me, and again, uh, through, through the past few years of sort of consolidating my life in theater and in film and in literature and all of that, I've come to realize that, of course, I love classical theater and classical stories, but given what's happening right now in the world, the stories that we're telling now should ideally sort of reflect lessons in history that perhaps we have not learned. <laughs> so for example, for me, Alice's story is, is uh, of course what happened to her being taken to labor camp. All of that, of course, matters enormously. But as you just pointed out, there have been stories about that. So for me, what was very, very striking and memorable and different is, was the fact that here you have a woman who spends a lifetime saying, believe me, and she's told, you know, oh, but what but, do but, you know? And maybe you're imagining it, but why, why would your father have been so important and this and that? For me, the unexpected and surprising ending, to steal a little bit of uh, David Mamet's words in terms of how a story ends, the fact that at the end, we, we suddenly discover something that speaks to her history, to her identity, to her roots, to what she lost from the moment she arrived at the airport in, in Toronto and had to change her, her last name. All of those things amount to the fact that this lady passed away having really joined the dots, put the pieces together about her history. Not only her story, but her history and, and her roots. And, and one of the things that I love about Alice's character... Um, from from what, what I've heard uh, from Ron is that she wasn't interested so much in looking to the past for maybe pity or maybe sadness. None of that, you know. And so again, I love the idea of a strong woman who looks. Uh, ahead ahead and and is ready to move forward yes not not forgetting the things that have happened to her but but also not not taking a great deal of pleasure in staying in the past
3: your uh, play that you have created mini suitcase it's all about changing identities or having finding looking for identities i mean you've performed it a number of times
2: Mimi's suitcase um even though it's a story of coming of age story of of a teenager who goes from Barcelona to Tehran and then from Tehran to London. But, you know, what I loved about the reactions I got from the audience was that uh, it didn't matter whether they were from Ireland or the States or Iran or anywhere. Um, People could somehow relate to the story because we've all experienced change. I think that's at the core of the story that as a human being, when you experience change, whether it's relocating, moving, immigrating, going on exile, becoming a refugee, any of those variations, with it comes a wave of things that have to happen. You know, you don't only have to learn the language, but then you also have to learn how to become that person. For example, when I when I moved to to London, I didn't speak English, and I was in my twenties, and uh, but not only did I have to learn to speak English, but I also had to learn to become British in a way because you have to fit in. You want you want to fit in in a society. The same thing happened when I moved to the United States. You know, I came here and I couldn't talk like that anymore. <laughs> I change my accent because I, I I desperately wanted to fit in because it's sometimes it's very difficult to always be the outsider. And um, I think in Mimi's suitcase, that's that's the other thing. And I also wanted to create a multilingual show, and I haven't seen many multilingual shows because often we're scared to put on shows in other languages because we think we're going to lose audiences, and I wanted to create a show where we would acknowledge these different languages when when, when we're in uh, in England. Of course, everybody's going to speak English, but when we're in Spain, then then we're going to be speaking in Spanish, or when we're in Iran, we're going to be speak in, speaking in Persian, so,, uh, I didn't want to be scared to create something new, something different, something multilingual. But when you say multilingual,
3: how does that really work in practice and uh, on stage?
2: It was a, it was a, in, technically speaking, it was a huge, huge thing to happen because then we ended up with five hundred uh, projections, and most of which were, um surtitles, you know, like when you go to the opera and the and sort of subtitles are up there and you basically are looking at the what's happening on the stage, but also above above the stage, you have uh, basically the, the language uh, translated into English. That's how we tackled it so that we could keep the multilingual aspect of the show.
3: Are you planning to incorporate some Polish into your Ron Davis's or I should say Alice's story?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because also Alice and her husband, you know, they also use Yiddish together. So for me, it's also very, very important to to stay truthful to that. In light of all the atrocious things that are happening right now in the world, again, my hope as an international storyteller is to shed light on how very much we have in common, that we, if, if we really look closely we realize we have more in common than we realize this, this notion of our shared humanity. It, it's always a good time to tell good stories, but even more so now, I think we have to tell stories that humanize immigrants. And that's why touring the world, going to Poland, going to the fringe in Edinburgh, coming to Canada with it, all of those, those things right here in the United States, very, very important, very, very urgent. So I'm really hoping I can do my own little part to um, make that happen.
1: To learn more about Anna Bayat and her story, please visit our website at mypolcast.com.
8: Smacznego! We're here talking about our love for eating Polish, especially during the Christmas holidays. My name is Peter, and my
9: name is Laura,
8: and we wrote two heritage Polish cookbooks called Polish Classic Recipes and Polish Classic Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations,
9: but updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Unless you're living totally in a jungle somewhere, you know that shopping malls and most stores have already been decorated for Christmas for a very long time starting even before Halloween.
8: When we were growing up, Christmas was never this huge commercial spectacle as it is now. My mom told stories about Christmas in Poland before World War II, that the celebrations were always simple, and no one even sang Christmas carols until Christmas Eve.
9: And they certainly didn't have Christmas movies on TV playing in October and November. Back in the day, Christmas was always a time of anticipation and excitement.
8: Our traditional Polish Christmas Eve supper is called Vigilia, which means vigil or waiting for the birth of Jesus, and it was totally based on traditions and dishes that were handed down for generations upon generations. It's the most historical and anticipated meal of the year. Generations of Polish babchas would prepare food for weeks and weeks just for this one special feast.
9: Now things are a bit more modernized, but the traditions still live on. The meal is meatless, and it is customary to set an extra place at the table for that lonely traveler who may knock at the door.
8: There are a few sprigs of pine branches on the table from the holy manger. In country villages in Poland, it might have been a thin layer of hay under the tablecloth.
9: Twelve dishes were served, symbolizing the twelve apostles, and poppy seeds were always a part of Christmas Eve supper as a symbol of peacefulness and honey for sweetness. There is a magical delicacy of noodles with poppy seeds, honey, and raisins in our first book.
8: Kluski's makim is the name of that dish. The feast should begin as soon as the first star is visible in the sky. When I was maybe five or six, I remember running out on the porch and looking up, waiting for that first star to peek out so that we could get started with the sharing of the wafer, an important tradition that we still follow. I was always so hungry...
9: The white, almost translucent wafer is a symbol of love, friendship, and forgiveness. It's like a communion wafer, only rectangular like a small postcard. It is broken into bite-sized pieces and shared with everyone at the table, along with wishes for a happy and a healthy new year. Peter's mom would always use a communion wafer blessed in Poland and mailed over. Now we get our wafers from a nearby Polish church or even through the Internet.
8: Our own menu is right out of our heritage cookbooks. We start with a clear basht, peppery, deep red beet broth, the rich color of a fine cabernet wine. This classic formal version doesn't contain any vegetables and is served in our best fine china teacups. A second appetizer always served with the basht are crepes stuffed with a savory mix of mushroom and sauerkraut breaded and sautéed lightly in the pan just to crisp up the outside.
9: Our daughter and son-in-law would be perfectly happy if crepes were the only item on the menu, and I always have to make extra. For our young granddaughter, who hasn't acquired the taste of sauerkraut yet, I just stuff her crepes with sweetened ricotta cheese and she loves it.
8: Vigilia is meatless. Herring or cart is the traditional fish course But back in the 1950s in Canada, they were hard to find in the winter. So my mom would buy a very fresh salmon and actually freeze it whole in a block of ice.
9: Today we serve haddock or flounder or cod or whatever whitefish is fresh and available. Vegetable polonaise, a colorful variety of fresh vegetables, topped with a mix of breadcrumbs and butter and some sort of potatoes round out the main course.
8: Little potato pancakes, sometimes called latkas, or in Polish, placki kartoflane, are absolutely heaven on your plate.
9: For dessert we always serve a variety of Polish baked goods as well as American Christmas cookies. The Polish nut roll and the poppy seed roll are always requirements. I usually make a dozen or so for sharing with friends. Peter loves trading sweets with our Greek neighbors our poppy seed rolls for their wonderful baklava.
8: We also love kolachki, a very traditional cookie of delicate dough squares wrapped around fruit preserves. In our gingerbread honey cake, piernik, which is so popular and easy to make, our dessert table just wouldn't be complete without a stately Warsaw fruitcake, which is not loaded down with cloyingly sweet candied fruit.
9: Peter likes to pour a little Polish brandy over his slice just for that added extra kick.
8: Or a lot of brandy. A compote of seven or eight dried fruits was also traditional for many years, but I'm not a big fan. When I got older, I'd kick up my mom's version with that same bottle of Polish brandy while she wasn't looking. Somehow, I always got caught, but seldom punished.
9: After the feasting ended and everyone let out their belts a few notches... Peter's mother always insisted that they sing Christmas carols together before opening any presents.
8: We'd move to the living room where there was a green, real Christmas tree, and we'd sit very uncomfortably on the floor, but I would be staring at all the gifts under the tree. My dad would break out the old vinyl LP records. The old ones from Poland were so scratchy. It killed me because we had two languages to cover. My mom couldn't carry a tune in a bucket and all I wanted to do was rip open wrapping paper. We usually enjoyed some more sweets with the gifts, and after cleaning up, we headed out to Midnight Mass, where we saw all of our friends.
9: Christmas Day was the aftermath, supposedly a day of rest, of playing with new toys, and for going from house to house, visiting friends, and trying all the ladies' baked goods. I'm told that the neighborhood competitions for those fancy goodies were absolutely cutthroat. The torts, the cookies, the baba, the fruitcake, they're all preserved in our books for those who don't have grandma's recipes.
8: And so it's been for us for 45 years together.
9: Wow, guys, you're the
3: borscht people.
8: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) You know, what I didn't say was that when Laura's not looking my son-in-law and I hit the pepper into the pot and, <laughs> and there have been times where that borscht became very, very peppery. But,
3: but I don't know if you're aware of the fact that poles are divided into two groups like in many like in, with everything else, not only politics. Sure. Okay, those who eat borscht, which is the beet soup you, you, you described on right. Christmas Eve, and those who eat wild mushrooms. Yes. Oh, of yes.
8: course. Yes. We yes. have right. both recipes it's in our pork. book.
3: Excellent, because I originally, my family, where I was, you know, my my family, my mother, my father, all my grandmothers and so on and so we were from the wild mushroom family. And then I married into a borscht family, so it became, you know, (laughs) I've switched. But that was really, and these are wild mushrooms, right? The ones that are dried, so yeah.
8: My my mother's sister used to do the mushroom soup for for Vigilia, and Mm -hmm. one, one year... They spent Christmas with us. They came over from Western Canada. And um, and so there was a huge discussion, argument, <laughs> debate over which soup to do for Vigilia. <laughs> so I think they ended up doing both soups.
3: I think us. that's a great idea. That's what we do, right? We spent Christmas Eve with um a lot of friends as well and some of them sure. are from the borscht family some of them or group and some of them are from the clan that eats <laughs> well, you right. know, mushrooms mushroom soup the other thing I wanted to mention is for us when we do m- borscht we don't do crepes which I know people do we do what we actually talked with um, Tomek about it because it's so funny linguistically it's called little ears which are ushka, yes. yeah, ushka.
0: <laughs>
9: yes. Those are in our
3: book too. Oh right, so you. Yeah, we but put you, them in the box. That's right. So that's why we that's, we normally use bigger you know bowls yeah. and then we put ushka there, which
8: is so, so funny. They're, they're a lot of work, so we just eat the plain.
3: Well, we don't make them; we buy them. I have to tell
8: you. <laughs> <laughs> or you just buy Italian tortellini. No, actually, and, no. On.
3: You know, remember we live in Toronto, when there are so many, where there are so many Polish stores. So like they sell carp. You always have carp. Before right. Christmas. And you always can buy all these pierogi and you can buy ushka and you can buy everything ready-made because they just make it. Yeah. But you, sure. you live far away from Polish, you know, big
8: Polish it community. Took me, so. I delivered some books last week to the nearest Polish deli. It was an hour and a half. Here we go. Got You know, there's another one about an hour and 45 minutes away. Right, right. But it's it's a drive, you know.
3: But the beauty of having our Polish Christmas Eve, right, and having our presents on Polish Christmas Eve is that the following day, I'm sure you have... you know, Santa Claus coming through the chimney and all this stuff starts again yeah, <laughs> on Christmas. The
5: American version, That's right.
3: right, the American version. Well, anyway, thank you so much. We're going to use all your uh, recipes. So all the best to you, and I wish you, uh, I don't know, five reprints of each of your books, and uh, <laughs> work on more and more and more.
8: <laughs> okay? Right. All thank the best. You. We've posted a full transcript of this conversation on our website, www polishclassiccooking.com There you can also find our heritage cookbooks which contain all the authentic recipes for a traditional Wigilia. Our books are also available on most online booksellers such as Amazon, even in far off places like Japan, the UK, South Africa or down under. Laura and I would like to wish you and yours wszystkiego najlepszego na Boże Narodzenie. And of course, smacznego.
3: I have seen and heard Arthur Wachnik, actor, musician, singer, director, on stage, on a few occasions. His rendition of a powerful song, Niech Żyje Bal, sung by Maryla Rodowicz, was one of the most unforgettable elements of the Polish independence concert held at the Christian Performing Arts Center in Toronto, CPA, a very special venue of which Arthur is the artistic director. I talked to Arthur before CPA's brand new production. Nativity Musical. Its three shows were held last weekend, all sold out, and were seen by over 9,000 people. Arthur, how long have you been in charge of the Christian Performing Arts Center?
10: Uh, It's been, I think, just over six years now.
3: How did this happen that you became its artistic director?
10: I was, uh, as a young uh, person, just finishing theater school Uh, I had sort of my faith had sort of uh, come alive that last year of theater school, and I really wanted to connect uh, my belief in God with uh, with my art. And I was fortunate enough to find a a small uh, professional theater company a few months after finishing school in the city of Toronto uh, that focused on telling biblical sort of worldview uh, stories. And it was a fantastic company, but unfortunately, they went bankrupt a few years later due to some mismanagement. Um, but I just absolutely fell in love with the idea of uh, telling stories that were connected to the Bible, connected to faith. And uh, a few years down the road after after that, um, the CPA Center was holding auditions, and and so I started there just uh, just um, auditioning for somebody and and just being part of the show, uh, a Christmas show there. And two years later, uh, when the artistic director sort of abruptly uh, left, they offered me the the role uh, to come in and see if it was a fit. And so that's kind of how it started. And I said no to them initially. When they approached me with it, I thought they were crazy because I was just an actor. Um, and I didn't really have any ambition to be more than that. Uh, I was very happy just being a performer, um, musician, all this kind of thing. And I did not have a lot of experience with directing and managing such a huge operation because there's literally hundreds of volunteers. But it turned out after a couple of months, I saw that it was an amazing fit. I'm glad I, I took a chance.
3: It is indeed so huge. Can you tell me how many seats there are in the hall where the shows are held?
10: It's 3,199
3: seats. <laughs> wow, that is really huge. Now, to run it, to manage it, how many people do you have?
10: Oh, it's a large team. Um, there's one administrator that works directly with me who's like my right arm and I would be absolutely lost without her. And then I have sort of key people in each department um, of production. So there's somebody that oversees tech and uh, lighting and audio. And for, for the plays, we need to put somebody for uh, to head up props and costumes and set building. So it's it's a large team. And then, and then it, you know, in each of those departments, there's dozens sometimes of volunteers that also help to keep things organized and running smoothly.
3: So how many productions do you hold there a year? I know about this incredible passion play that has been in existence for how many years?
10: It's been 27 years that uh, it's happened in Toronto. So it started sometime in the early 90s. It's kind of changed drastically three times, uh, three or four times actually. I don't know the early history, but uh, the current one I wrote uh, in collaboration with some um, friends about uh, two or three years ago. Yeah, I mean the focus is always the passion of Christ uh, that that last week of his life, and we and, you know there's the crucifixion scene and always a resurrection, but 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 how we tell the story through whose eyes? Um, that's the thing that kind of differs, and and I think. You know, makes it interesting for audiences. Uh, I mean, even though some people come to the same show because we do, we repeat them sometimes six or seven t- years in a row, and uh, we have a lot of folks that it's just it's just their tradition. I mean, they love coming every single year. But I think just to keep things interesting, we want to change it up every uh, every you know four or five six years to just to just look at different aspects of the story.
3: And you have a lot of roles to play in it. From what I understand, you're a composer, you're an actor, you're a director. Uh,
10: yeah, I sort of dabble in everything. And and what what I love about, you know, where I work is it's very much a collaborative thing. So I'm there and there's other artists, my my brother-in-law who's also Polish. He's he's a he's a conductor and uh an arranger. Um he was in um, Wrocław and working in a theater community there. Um, and so my sister just married the perfect guy because <laughs> he's come along, Moritz and Magula. And, and so working, I, you know, I collaborate with him on all the new stuff we're creating. He's, he does orchestrations. And, and then I have another person that helps with, with harmonies. And, you know, we bounce ideas off the community, other, other actors, artists. Uh, so it, it really is this kind of beautiful place where people can, kind of do things together, you know, I'd hate to be the sole person responsible for everything, because, uh, like, you can't be excellent at everything, right? Oh, so of course, yeah. it's it's great to just uh, be able to pick people's brains and then create this stuff together.
3: It's not a Catholic
10: church. No, it's a Protestant church. Um, more specifically, it's uh, Pentecostal. But it has a sort of spirit of, of being non-denominational. The people who are creating our productions, and even who are are coming into the facility, they're Christians from, you know, every denomination and and, and branch of Christianity.
3: Do you also have people from other religions coming to experience it, to see the beauty of this gorgeous show?
10: Yeah, oddly enough, um, you know, I'm always surprised by that, but it's always welcome. And I mean, we've had like, I think last year, the year before, we had like a group of a hundred and or 120 Muslims that came to the show. Uh, and I was just am- amazed, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, people are drawn to just, I guess, see the story acted out the way it is. And, you know, everybody's welcome. We've had Jewish co- people from Jewish community, Hindus.
3: And now what's happening very soon is your completely new Nativity musical, a completely new show. Unfortunately, this episode will be available, will be released after the show has already premiered. But let's talk about it a little bit.
10: Well, the Nativity Musical is completely brand new. Um, I started working on it last year, and it started because I was looking for a new Christmas show uh, to do, and I really wanted something that sort of told the, the story of Christ's birth. But funny enough, uh, I couldn't find a show anywhere in the world that actually existed like a musical, which I thought was just incredible because, I mean, you know, it, it seems like a no-brainer that somebody would write a musical about that, you know? Andrew Lloyd Webber has done a few of, about religious themes, and it, it just seems funny that no one's done a musical about the birth of Christ. Uh, so, so, you know, we thought, like, let's do our own. And we, it started with getting public domain Christmas carols, and we thought, can we tell the story of Jesus just through hymns and carols that everybody knows? And line them up sort of chronologically to tell the to tell the story, and it turns out you can sort of do that, and that's how it started. And then each Carol or each uh, hymn sort of had its own kind of musical genre. Uh, so we go everywhere from hip hop to country to gospel to uh, traditional music theater. So every scene uh, is kind of like like a different. Uh, world uh, musically. And and so we just started to have a lot of We said, we can, we can tell the story and have a lot of fun doing it and make it very celebratory and very multicultural. And uh, it just turned into this really fun thing. I mean, even in rehearsals where we regularly stop to just laugh out loud because uh, we're having just so much fun telling this story this way.
3: Right. Because I read in your news release that this is a fast paced comedy show.
10: Which is weird, but that's, that's where I live. Like I'm first and foremost, I think a comedic actor, um, a comedic writer. And so comedy for me is always just the way to enter into any story. I think, um, it's just like the natural way that I, I kind of look at the world, whether I'm with people, whether it's my work or, or just personal life, I'm just always laughing and having a good time. And so we kind of approach the story that way. It's a really lighthearted, fun, whimsical, almost crazy at times, but never irreverent. Like it's, it, you know, when we get to the, uh, the actual nativity, I think it's very worshipful and touching. But with a lot of these other characters, John the Baptist's parents or Caesar uh, or all these other, Herod, you know, I mean, we just go over the top and, and kind of have a lot of fun. with it.
3: <laughs> it's also huge in terms of the number of people on stage. I just read in the materials there are like 60 people performing.
10: Yes. Uh, in the Passion Play, we have more uh, normally, but in this production, I think there's 60 to 70 performers, plus uh, the orchestra, and a couple of hundred people that help behind the scenes. How long is the show? The show runs about 90 minutes, and sort of, it's family-friendly, so whether you're four years old or 104 years old, I believe uh, people will, will have a good time. It's kind of age-appropriate for everyone.
3: And how is it possible that despite this incredibly big scale you charge five dollars per ticket
10: uh-huh so the reason we do that uh, has to do with sort of the philosophy of the senior pastor of the church uh, where the CPA center sits and that's uh, it comes out of the belief that everyone and anyone should get to come and experience it We have uh, across the street from the church a center that sort of helps Homeless families in the not not just homeless but just people who are kind of struggling in the community. And there's hundreds of people that get fed weekly through the programs that run out of there. And and there's just this belief that like we just we don't want to keep anyone from coming and experiencing the shows and and having a great time. So we keep the cost at five dollars so that anyone can do it. And uh, for that reason, during the, the intermission, there is usually a free will offering that is taking so. If anyone wants to uh, donate any extra money to, to cover some of the extra expenses, they're, they're, they're free to do that. But we never force anyone. And really, the main reason is we just want anyone and everyone uh, to see it who, who can. Arthur, you have four sons. Uh, my oldest son is 14 and my youngest is five years old.
3: Right. Are they musically gifted, talented?
10: You know there is uh there's definitely an artistic sort of thing happening with each of them. My oldest son is a bit of a filmmaker. He's got a real eye for photography and film. Uh he uh, even received this special award from National Kids Geographic a few years ago when he started taking pictures. So <laughs> it's kind of funny to see. I like we haven't like forced them or pushed them into that stuff. They just naturally seem to be gravitating to the arts. My second one too. He's he's writing stuff. He's on stage with me sometimes. He's a really great actor. And um, my other ones are just beginning with music and whatnot. But um, yeah, it's kind of fun to, to to see these kids start to explore this stuff. They're helping out in uh, various aspects.
3: Have they acted in any uh, plays in any shows that you have presented in your center?
10: Yes, they have. Some of them. Sometimes they even had uh, large roles. And in this current Christmas show, just my oldest is participating. Um, but probably the whole family will be involved with the Passion Play this uh, coming spring.
3: You're Polish, right? You come from a Polish family.
10: Right? I am. I'm super Polish. My my parents were both immigrants here, and so I I grew up in a very Polish household. I didn't actually speak English till I went to kindergarten, so I can speak Polish. It's just, you know, like I, it's broken, of course, right? Um, I understand it excellently. Um, And my wife is also Polish.
3: And born in Canada?
10: No, no, she's from Poland. She was 10 years old when she moved to the States, and then we met and she moved up here. So I am constantly in very Polish settings.
3: Do you ever go to Poland?
10: Yeah, I was just there in August. I love Poland. I absolutely, like any any chance I get, I'm just floored by Poland. Was that a professional
3: visit or did you just go to see your family back in Poland?
10: For the first time, I took my church there because I, I also sing at the church with uh, like a gospel group. We have a huge uh, kind of uh, worship gospel team. And we've been in different places in the world. And I thought, you know what, I would love to go to Poland. And I got the green light to do that. And that's, And that's what we did. We were there for two weeks on a tour. Where did you perform? Uh we started in Warsaw and then we did this uh southeast kind of thing. We were in a lot of smaller towns and uh cities and ended finished in Krakow. Uh and so it was it was amazing. And the people who uh were on our team uh, were not Polish and they were just like their jaws were on the floor. They were they they fell in love with Poland, the food, the culture, the people uh everything it was it was it was an amazing amazing trip i attended
3: the nativity musical premiere and was impressed by the scale of the spectacular show its fantastic cast and the play itself its humor phenomenal music dazzling lights sensational scenery special effects and the live orchestra Also, it was so Canadian. Young, talented actors and dancers of all races, and the same in the audience. I loved the beautiful Black Mary and the spectacular Caribbean angel Gabriel and his reggae-style enunciation. My advice is, make it your pre-Christmas treat next year. And around Easter, definitely attend the CPA's Passion Play. I certainly will.
1: To learn more about Arthur and his unusual musical, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. In the past episodes of our podcast, we have covered a large number of stories and presented to you many amazing people. And it is our great pleasure to update you on some of our interlocutors' new achievements as well as some new developments in the stories we have featured.
3: We are so happy to tell you that Marek Probosz, a Polish actor who made it big in Hollywood, has not only presented the play The Auschwitz Volunteer, Captain Viktor Pilecki, which he directed and in which he acted on Broadway, but the play received the prestigious Best Documentary Show Award at the United Solo Festival. the world's largest solo theatre festival in New York. During the 10-day event, 130 solo shows are presented at Theatre Row on Broadway.
1: Marek making big not only in Hollywood, but also on Broadway. Congratulations! Ola Turkiewicz, a Polish-Canadian jazz vocalist and musician, who now lives in Poland...
3: Well, she is the composer of all our Polka's jingles.
1: ...has taken her independence concert...
3: We were fortunate to host it in Toronto two years ago...
1: ...to Lithuania and Latvia. And now, on December 28th, it will be presented in Australia... Yet another continent, and as always, the concert is customized to show the special connection between Poland and the country where it is played as brothers in arms.
3: Congratulations Ola and everybody, the whole team of the Independence Concert.
1: You've been listening to the 60th episode of Polcast.
3: Polcast is created, recorded, and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska
1: and Tomek Kniat. For a lot of additional information, multimedia, links, please visit our website at mypolcast.com.
3: And while you're there, please share your comments, your reactions, and suggest ideas. If you know of any interesting story that we should cover on our podcast, please let us know.
1: And please remember about our crowdfunding campaign. Like all other podcasts, we do count and depend on all our listeners. As we said before, what is free for you to listen to is not free for us to make. So, please, support
3: podcast. Go to mypodcast.com slash support and make a pledge.
1: If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends.
3: And don't forget to rate this episode on your favorite podcast app.
1: And I hope you enjoyed this Christmas episode more than any others. So, for that reason, we wish you all Wesołych Świąt i Szczęśliwego Nowego Roku. Which
3: translates, obviously, as Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We do wish you lots of love and fantastic world around us and peace and all the good stuff. And... um.
1: And Wesołych to you, Małgosia.
3: And to you too, and your family, and all our friends.
1: And we leave you with Kalenda Dwóch Serc. Carol for two hearts. I'm sure you will recognize the original. I happen to like the Polish version better. I hope you too. Again, Merry Christmas.
3: We will meet with you next year in 2019.
1: Thank you for listening to Polcast.
0: Zaznaczenia Kimś, kto się nie liczy Nic nie zmienia mm, Powiedz Nie brakuje Ci mnie Czy we wspomnieniu Wracam mój cień